Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's conference, as well as to welcome our fantastic speakers. Today's conference will consist of two panels. The first panel will deal with uh, economic transformation in ex-communist countries, while the second panel will deal primarily with institutional development in the former communist bloc. There will be three speakers on each panel. <clears throat> the panels will have 20 minutes each. There will also be a 30-minute period for Q&A at the end of each panel. Before introducing the first speaker, allow me a short personal recollection. 25 years ago, I was a kid living in communist Czechoslovakia. There was no freedom of speech, religion, assembly, and travel. Prisons were filled with political prisoners, while the communist bloc as a whole was a vast prison surrounded by barbed wire and watchtowers. Even thought was regulated by propaganda, wiretapping, and denunciation all of which were enabled by government monopoly of the education system, media, and the police. People were lethargic and work ethic disincentivized by egalitarianism appalling. The shops were largely empty and shortages of everything from bread and eggs to shoes and cars were omnipresent. Recently, I read that in Venezuela, the latest Marxist paradise in the making they ran out of toilet paper. Well, this could have been Czechoslovakia or Poland in the 1980s, which begs the obvious question. Why is it that communists always run out of toilet paper but never out of bullets? Food for thought. By 1989, most people wanted socialism gone, but um, could not agree on what should replace it. Some governments opted for rapid transformation to capitalism, while others took a more gradual approach. What worked and what didn't? That will be the subject of today's conference. As for me, my trips to Czechoslovakia, the former Czechoslovakia, fill me with optimism. Incomes, longevity, and education are at an all-time high. The shops are filled with mind-boggling array of goods. New building sites and highways are everywhere. Many of the ex-communist societies, but not all, have become fully democratic and more tolerant toward other races, religions, sexual minorities, and embrace equality for women. While some problems persist, much has been accomplished over the last 25 years. And to start our discussion about what worked, what did not work, and what are the lessons of the ex-communist transition, um, I would like to welcome our first speaker, Oleg Havrilishin. Dr. Havrilishin is currently adjunct professor of economics at uh, George Washington University and one of five members of the Economic Advisory Council to Ukraine's Minister of Economics and Presidential Administration. After his PhD from MIT, he had a long academic career at Queen's University, George Washington University, as well as several uh, visiting professorships in Europe. He served as Deputy Minister of Finance in the Ukraine government in 1992 and 93, and Ukraine's representative to the IMF between 93 and 96, serving subsequently as Deputy Director um, at the IMF covering the former Soviet Union countries. 
He's written numerous books and articles on trade and transition issues, including on the economy of Ukraine, and is widely cited in the post-communist transition literature. He's been invited to be a panelist for the celebratory conference 25 years of reform in Poland in November. But today, in October, we are very lucky to have him give us a talk today uh, here at Cato Institute. So Oleg, welcome, and uh, please would you come to the podium. Thank you uh, very much, Marian. Uh, I am the lucky one to uh, continue to have these wonderful invitations uh, at Cato, uh, the home of uh, liberty. Uh, and I think I may have convinced uh, Ian and uh, Marion that there is a new uh, uniform for Cato uh, members. Uh, they should purchase a whole series of these ties in Dubrovnik, which uh, say here in Latin, libertas. Because to me, uh, Dubrovnik or Ragusa at that time was a much earlier home of liberty. That was their main motto. Uh, I think that fits here very well. By the way, to maintain the spirit of today's discussion, though it's not yet November the 9th, I brought with me my uh, piece of the uh, Berlin Wall. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, I uh, uh, want to confirm much of what uh, Marion said with a little more detail and some quantitative analysis and raise a couple of provocative issues, which I hope will uh, will uh, give us a discussion. Uh, the, uh, but let me make one more point about real liberty. Uh, I'm a Ukrainian, and I wish to dedicate this as well as the forthcoming paper that uh, Cato will be issuing in a month's time uh, with more detail to the uh, Nebesna Sotnya, or the Heavenly Hundred, of the Euromaidan who uh, suffered and were killed during the latest effort of the people to insist that they want freedom and liberty, uh, in this case, in Ukraine. Well, uh, the uh, coverage of what I want to do today, uh, briefly uh, some introduction and overview. Uh, to set the stage, I want to summarize quickly some conclusions that had been reached in earlier reviews around the year 2000, 2005, and so on. And then to update to 2004 to see what latest statistics will uh, confirm or not confirm earlier findings, resolve or not resolve some of the disputes. And I'll finish with a bit of a uh, conclusion. From the beginning of transition, there were many debates on how best to do it. Should it be done gradually or should it be done rapidly, the so-called gradualist versus Big Bang debate? Uh, what should be the sequence between uh, liberalization of markets and institutions? Uh, how to privatize? Uh, and issues of whether the Washington consensus was relevant or, or not relevant. To the present day, in fact, some of these debates continue, uh, especially I find that uh, there is still a deeply built-in perception that uh, Russia's democratic disaster and social disruptions of the late 90s and onwards were caused by uh, the effort to apply a rapid Big Bang reform shock therapy. I happen to disagree with that, and I will try to briefly give you some idea why. Uh, the most important motivation is a rather dry one. Look, we've got 25 years of hard evidence, lots of data, in more than 25 countries, nearly 30 countries, 
surely this is a pretty good time to do a retrospective and try to answer some of the questions of what happened. So this is what I do. Earlier studies uh, before 2000 raised concerns that uh, Big Bang reforms caused huge social pain and that building market institutions was being ignored. Uh, studies about 2000, starting from 2000, continued to agree that the social costs were high, but began to point out a, something significant and interesting, that this was much more so in the former Soviet Union most communist countries than in Central Europe and the Baltics, which in fact had by as early as 94, 95, seen a recovery from this uh, deep recession uh, caused by uh, transition. Uh, indeed, Balcerovich, who's of course well known in the field as uh, the leader of the architect of the Big Bang reforms in Poland, uh, argued categorically by this time already in 2003 paper that the Big Bang cases were doing much better. Uh, studies that I did, including a Cato policy paper in 2007, uh, tried to, in fact, uh, agreed with Balcerovich in general uh, and pointed out or suggested that the problem with the 90 studies was that they were premature in drawing conclusions because of the simple logic of the expected effects on the economy of transition. It was well known to economists, certainly, the work of uh, Janusz Kornaida, Hungarian economist, who said that you couldn't avoid a recession. Now, how big that recession was and so on is a different issue. You couldn't avoid it. That really should have already set the stage for saying that this is going to take more than five or seven years. Uh, and that, therefore, any conclusions drawn from five to seven years of data, as important as it was to do those studies, don't misunderstand me, I think it was important to keep looking, but any of those conclusions may have been premature because they were measuring half of a cycle. Uh, the 2007 Cato policy paper, uh, I think uh, the main conclusion I, I underline here, that the performance, economic performance, and social performance, by the way, not just economic, uh, of countries that did early and rapid reforms was far superior to those countries that delayed or went through reforms more slowly. Please give me a warning sign of 10, five minutes, whatever. Well, what do we know by 2014? Uh, the EBRD, Ukrainian Bank for Extraction and Development, has since the early 90s been tracing a, how far countries have gone in transforming the regime from a socialist central planning regime to a market uh, uh, economy. Uh, and this transition pro uh, progress index of the EBRD I have reproduced in this chart with Central Europe, Baltic, Southeast Europe countries on the uh, left hand and uh, the uh, former Soviet Union countries on the right hand. The first thing that is obvious is that the former Soviet Union countries were and remain largely quite a bit behind the uh, countries in Central Europe and in the Baltics. The second thing, uh, and this is a bit too busy to see all the details, so I'll uh, talk about, a bit about it, uh, and the paper goes into uh, easier to interpret uh, information. Uh, the second thing that is uh, uh, clear from this chart is that the Central Europe and Baltic countries started earlier and moved more resolutely, whereas there was much more of a delay uh, in the FSU countries. And the famous case of Russia, while it is true that under Yegor Gaidar there was a big bang, 
that Big Bang was very limited and very short in duration. This is something that is little remembered in the analysis of criticism of the Big Bang in Russia, is that it was not sustained. I like to refer to it as an aborted Big Bang. So drawing conclusions that Big Bang leads to problems uh, raises for me some, uh, some problems. Uh, it turns out that you can group countries very conveniently according to the path they followed in this uh, transition to market. And this is not a matter of economic performance, how well GDP did and so on. I'll get to that in a second. But just this measure of the EBRD. Uh, Central Europe and the Baltics are the top lines. You can see that they moved quickly, they moved sharply up, and they continue to move towards more or less full completion of the transition by the EBRD uh, uh, definition. Uh, and then uh, other countries, uh, Southeast Europe was unique because it was many of these countries were suffering the Yugoslav wars, so clearly they wouldn't be uh, doing much economic reform at the beginning. You see that precisely in the green line. What is important is the uh, former Soviet Union countries, uh, which are usefully divided into two groups. Uh, the FSU lag, or the blue line, refers to three countries, Belarus, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, where economic reforms, changes from the traditional system, are virtually not done. They're, they're basically still largely more socialist economies than market economies. And then the rest of the former Soviet Union countries, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Kazakhstan, and so on, uh, are in that uh, purple line where we see that, uh, yeah, they have moved forward. There's no question that there's been a lot of change and a lot of marketization, but far more slowly and still remain far behind the Central European and Baltic countries. Well, first simple correlation, and I'll admit this is simple, and this will require some econometricians to do more sophisticated work in the future. First simple correlation is with GDP per capita. The similarity of these two graphs is, to me, striking. The countries that moved early, moved fastest, and went farthest in uh, market liberal and market reforms are the uh, very same countries that have had a very sharp increase in GDP per capita. And down below, you see uh, uh, the FSU 9, which is the ones that do a little reform, the, what I referred to in the earlier graph as the those who are not lagging, but just slow. Uh, their uh, per capita income performance is much poorer. In the Euromaidan of Ukraine from November onward, the one simple statistical fact played a huge role when it was pointed out that Poland and Ukraine had about the same standard of living in 1990. And in the year 2013, Poland's per capita income was three times higher. And it doesn't matter how you measure it. In the paper, there's a lot of detail about whether you do purchasing power parity or nominal or exchange rate. That all shows the same pattern. Different numbers, of course, but all the same pattern. Yes, but GDP per capita is not the only way of uh, measuring progress or, or success in the economy, is it? Well, look at, for example, the attract, attraction of FDI inflows per capita. You see the same pattern, of much, much bigger for Central Europe, for the Baltics, than it is for any of the FSU countries. Uh, but, you know, what about things like income distribution and uh, uh, poverty ratios and so on and so forth? Uh, actually, surprisingly, 
The same pattern holds true that the socioeconomic performance, I'll call that socioeconomic performance, uh, is much better in the early reformers than uh, it is in the uh, FSU uh, gradual uh, reformers. Uh, one way of measuring this is with the well-known uh, measure of the UNDP, Human Development Index, and you can see that pattern. I won't go into the details here, I just want to make the point that it gives the same story as GDP per capita. Uh, I want to just say briefly, though this is for the next panel more, uh, something about the democratization. It is, I think, of extreme importance in reviewing the history of uh, transition uh, to, uh, to market capitalist economies to point out that the same countries that did the greatest amount of economic liberalization were also the same countries that have achieved the greatest degree of democratization. Uh, many of you are uh, doubtless familiar with Freedom House numbers. I have never understood why they inverted that the higher the number, the worse the democracy is, but so, so be it. You can uh, quickly do the mathematical transform. Down, up at the top, or sorry, down at the bottom with the lowest and therefore best numbers, you see Central Europe and the Baltics. And you see that it, they jumped very quickly to high levels of about between two and three on the, the Freedom House Index, and they continued to go downwards forward. Uh, very quick footnote, some of the debates about Hungary getting worse these days and so forth, no doubt true, but you know, a tempest in a sea storm when you look at this long-term trend. It is the little squibbles towards the end that reflect some of the, the reversals that you may see on democratization. The most important point for me in this is the comparison with the gradual economic reformers, and that is that uh, uh, they follow a much less democratic path, and in particular, we see the purple is for the FSU-9 that have done a little bit of reform, and the blue at the top is the uh, uh, FSU-3 lagging countries. I mean, the uh, remain, uh, staying at levels, high levels of authoritarianism is clear in those three, but not improving democracy in the other group is also clear in this, in this curve. In, in the middle, the uh, purple one, uh, that, yeah, they achieved, you know, medium level of democratization, but never continued to improve, most of them. Some deteriorated. If you look at individual countries, you will see sharp deteriorations uh, from amongst that group, like Russia, for example. Okay. Now, uh, there is an issue uh, that has been around for a long time and continues to the present day. But, well, fine, they did a lot of uh, economic liberalization, these countries, but they have been lagging, they, these leaders, they have been lagging on developing high-quality institutions. Now, uh, there are many different ways of measuring institutions, and uh, there are other places where uh, uh, scholars, and I also have done work on taking a look at all different kinds of measures, like the World Bank governance, the World Bank doing business. Uh, but a long-term trend can be had by taking the EBRD components of the TPI, of the, liberal, of the uh, Market Progress Index, because some of them are clearly liberalizing markets, allowing uh, uh, private enterprise, selling off uh, small enterprises, uh, liberalizing prices, liberalizing external trade, and some of them have to do with government institutions, 
over institutions related to the economy for the most part. So these institutions are not governance institutions, but just market-related institutions. What is most striking about this to me? Uh, and I really hope I will get some serious uh, counter-arguments uh, to, uh, to this. Most striking to me is the following, that despite the scientific arguments made early, that uh, you should make sure that you put in place good institutions before you liberalize the market and then you get the best result from liberalization. I agree entirely with that uh, approach and, and theoretical uh, proposition. And despite the fact that many leaders of post-communist countries like President Krauchuk in Ukraine, uh, uh, the uh, Uz Uzbek president and uh, the uh, Belarusian uh, prime minister and so on, said that we are not against going towards the market, but we need to do it slowly in order to put in place good institutions. Well, promises, promises. None of those countries did institutions first. In fact, the main conclusion you draw from the hard statistics is that countries which moved farthest on institutions to the present day are the very same countries that moved earliest and fastest on market liberalization. So the sequencing uh, was never put into practice. I will not deny the theoretical possibility that if you had done institutions first, things would have been better, but we don't have an empirical test of that because no country has done that. All right, so what are the main conclusions? First of all, early reformers continually outperformed slow reformers starting from the mid-90s. The earlier stabilization of financial uh, uh, instability, the earlier liberalization, the faster the recovery and the greatest the amount of GDP per capita catch-up to uh, um, the European Union is uh, obviously the best benchmark for that. Secondly, uh, it's not only GDP per capita that shows this use any other, just about any other indicator of performance of in the economy and society, social costs, they show the same pattern. Thus, for example, FDI is far greater for early reformers. Uh, thus, for example, the least social pain as measured by the Human Development Index, not, uh, sorry, what is it? I think I've got a mis <laughs> misprint here. Poverty rations, uh, poverty ratios of the World Bank, Gini calculations, they show the same pattern. The least social pain, the least deterioration in uh, income distribution and so forth occurs in the countries that moved early on economic reforms. Notwithstanding the political promises to avoid pain of shock therapy, as Ukrainian leaders and many other FSU country leaders made in the 90s, the longest and deepest decline of HDI, which is perhaps the best uh, single measure of social costs, was precisely in the FSU countries. That is to say that the greatest social pain was not in the rapid reformers, but the greatest social pain was in the gradual reformers. Uh, consistency over time. The transition path in performance, as uh, I tried to show in the first graph, is fairly consistent. There is not a lot of jumping around, countries jumping up and coming down, and countries uh, slowing and going slow at first and then catching up and so forth. It's pretty consistent pattern. Uh, Southeast Europe is unique. It varies some early, some later, but that has to do with the uh, Yugoslav wars. 
Uh, and some exceptions there were Croatia and Slovenia, which did move a lot faster than the others. There are also some exceptions in the FSU. There's some countries that have jumped out of the uh, mold of being slow or being uh, uh, in, in the gradual group. Georgia, and to a lesser degree, and very little known, and very quietly, without any color, without any revolutions, little old Moldova catches up to CEB slowly, slowly, gradually. Ukraine is unique in the fact that it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, and uh, the uh, problems in Ukraine are, I think, partly the inconsistency between uh, uh, periods over time and the inconsistency between economic reforms and democratization. Uh, important new conclusion on institutions, I want to repeat it, that early market liberalization did not prevent or postpone implementation of good institutions. Indeed, the fastest movement on good institutions was in the very same countries that were earliest and fastest on economic market reforms. Why was this so? Very quickly, and it's just a hypothesis I haven't uh, uh, looked at quickly. Lustration ensured that the leaders in Central Europe and the Baltics were strongly committed to reform, took quick action, and they had the support of a society that wanted to move in that direction. This was best put by Marty Lahr, the first president of Estonia, in his uh, highly recommended tiny book, which you can uh, read to your children uh, easily enough, uh, called uh, The Little Country That Could. And in that, Marty Lahr answers the question, well, how did you go about doing it? How did you figure out how, the, you know, the path and the sequence and so forth? He said, we didn't discuss very much what to do. We just said goodbye, Lenin, and just do it. Thank you very much. I will leave with that. Thank you, Oleg. Right on time. Um, our I'll, second I'll keep order. Here so it get, uh, I'll, I'll keep it for you in a safe place. I'll keep it for you. Um, um, our second speaker is uh, Peter Murrell, who is the Mankur Olson Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland, College Park. He received his BSc and MSc from London School of Economics and his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He joined the University of Maryland faculty in 1977 as an assistant professor. He served as chair of the department from 2005 to 2012. From his PhD days, his research interests have always been in comparative economic institutions, focusing first on the socialist economies of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and then on the social democracies of post-war Western Europe. He has also been interested in institutional reforms in post-Soviet countries and China, and currently he works on the genesis of the first modern economic and political institutions, those of 17th century England. With that, please help me welcome Peter Murrell. Uh, thank you for that uh, nice introduction. Um, uh, when I was asked to present here, my charge was to comment on the paper by Oleg, which you've seen a summary of now, and that's, that's what I'm going to focus on. Uh, I'd like to thank um, Oleg, Marian, and Kato for sharing that paper with me uh, uh, beforehand uh, so I could read it in great detail and be informed uh, very well. Um, let me just say I'm, I'm an academic. 
Uh, and uh, I'm going to approach this in a very academic style, which is that there's a paper that uh, I've been asked to comment on, and my job is to uh, prod into its weaknesses. So uh, what I did on the way here was uh, stop in the Samuel Gompers Park across the street here and take a couple of deep breaths and decided uh, uh, how I would proceed. So... Um, let me just uh, 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 talk about the, the essence of the paper as I see it. Um, it has two parts. One is the assessment of facts, and the other is asking causal questions. Uh, the facts uh, examined are how far has the transition process gone, and, and on different dimensions, how does it differ, and whether the early leaders are also later leaders. Um, in... Its answers to this are as follows. Uh, how far? Obviously, uh, some have gotten very far, um, others not so far. Um, the different dimensions of progress are highly correlated across countries. There's no doubt about that. Are the early leaders uh, later leaders? Yes, they are, for sure. And basically, I agree with all of those findings of facts. Uh, where I'm going to differ a little bit from the paper is on the causal questions. Um, so uh, does performance reflect strategy, for example? Uh, is gradual worse than a rapid reform? And what about the Washington consensus? Was it a failure or success? The paper answers yes, that performance uh, reflected strategy. Uh, my answer to that is going to be a sort of question mark, and we'll, I'll get into the details of why I won't, don't want to say yes or no to that later on. Uh, the paper concludes that the faster the better. In fact, I'm going, to I'm going to claim that that conclusion is not correct, and I'm also going to talk about, uh, well, actually, I probably might not get time to this, about whether the Washington consensus was a failure or success. Here, I think it's just a semantic issue about what the Washington consensus was. Uh, so uh, Ole did something that was very helpful for a commentator at the beginning of his paper. He raised three admonitions about the past research, and very quickly... Um, what he said was be, simplify, be, be careful with using oversimplified terminology. Uh, many past papers don't use quantitative indicators and uh, beware of looking at old results rather than the latest results. Uh, I'm going to actually take these three admonitions to his paper and uh, question whether his paper lives up to these three admonitions in answering the questions uh, uh, that he looks at. So first of all, concepts. The most important question was whether to opt for gradual or rapid reforms. Well, that may have been true uh, to, if you were sitting in the capitals, but that was certainly not the way the policy debate uh, played out. More, uh, a more precise question would be to ask, what were the preconditions for a rapid reform or not? Um, Early and speedy reforms in the paper are contrasted versus delayed and hesitant reforms. And when I, re when I, when I uh, read the word hesitant there, I was thinking to myself, a political leader 
uh, standing up in front of his people and say, we'll reform on Tuesday. No, we won't. Wednesday. And did anybody in the policy circles actually uh, um, talk about hesitant reforms? No, of course not. Uh, lastly, the recommendation of the advocates of gra gradualism to first put in place good institutions and then to liberalize, uh, that Ole says was um, part of the uh, recommendations from groups of people. It, it wasn't. Uh, nobody would think that all liberalization should wait for good institutions. Uh, freedom of speech, for instance, uh, should not wait for uh, good institutions, for example. So what was the debate about? And I, I want to spend three or four minutes now talking about the debate, because it's, it's important to understand how Western academics were debating amongst themselves, uh, not how Lukashenko was phrasing reforms. That, that's sort of irrelevant to thinking about what, what has happened to reforms. And what I would like to do is not talk about gradual versus um, uh, uh, rapid, but radical versus evolutionary institutional reforms. And in radical reforms, we, they're sort of endpoint driven, thinking about uh, free, market, uh, free markets as the endpoint. Uh, evolutionary institutional reforms take off from the existing state. And this is in line with the notion that uh, radical reforms will stress credibility wipe out the old regime so there's no chance of going back. Uh, an evolutionary institutional reform will talk about reversibility, the possibility that if you make really bad mistakes, you need to be able to reverse them somehow. So we have cleaning the slate versus uh, acknowledging that the past is always going to be present. Uh, there's an assumption, there was an assumption in the radical uh, approach that reforms were always going to improve things, and the evolutionary institutional reforms suggested that change was going to be inherently costly. Uh, in line with that, uh, evolutionary institutional reforms said, well, the effect of liberalization is going to be conditional on the way the society is at the moment. Uh, and a lot of that is uh, about institutions. Now, nobody, I think, pushing an evolutionary institutional line thought that good institutions were going to be created quickly. And uh, it was a variegated approach, thinking about where the old institutions could be used, where new institutions might be created quickly to support liberalization, or where you just didn't need them. There was nothing, no sense in that literature, at least the one, the literature I was involved in, that you, you had to wait for good institutions, uh, to build good institutions. And uh, the last point, and I think this is very important, uh, uh, and you'll for this particular venue, and you'll see why in the next uh, slide, the radical reforms assumed that experts know how to produce reform, how to produce change, and the evolutionary institutional approach suggested that large unprecedented changes are highly risky. Now, uh, 
the uh, impetus for this, what I'm saying now, did not actually come from Samuel Gompers Park, but it actually comes from a long line of philosophical, political, economic thought. Uh, and that thought is actually reflected in those letters written by a couple of English gentlemen at the early, early part of the 18th century from which they took the name Cato uh, and from which this institute uh, derives its name. So here we're talking about a long, the evolutionary institutional approach has an incredibly long tradition, and I think it's one that Hayek would have been associated with and so on. So let me just give you one quote from, from Cato written in the early 18th century. Uh, it proceeds from a consummate ignorance to think that a number of men agreeing together can make and hold a commonwealth before nature has prepared the way. So that's the basic sort of notion of evolutionary institutional thought um, expressed in 18th century language. Okay, so the, that's about admonition number one concepts, and, and I think to talk about gradual versus rapid is not uh, uh, um, helpful at this stage. Uh, the second is on quantitative analysis, and, and, and Oleg gives us, gives us lots of quantitative analysis, in particular thoroughly correctly. He suggests that we use the EBRD reform uh, transition pro progress index but it's not perfect, and one needs to think about what it represents. And I'll give you an example, Poland versus Russia. Um, one thing is, is uh, we're going to have to make some adjustments. Russia started in 1992. Poland started in 1991. That was just geography, essentially, geopolitics. Secondly, the, evolu the, the Transition Progress Index, the TPI, focuses on six different indicators, but only four of them are really sort of decisive in looking at a radical versus an evolutionary institutional approach. Um, uh, thirdly, reforms are changes. And we've got to realize that some countries reformed uh, before the so-called Big Bang and so on, and we've got to take that into account. So let me look at two countries now. This is the transition uh, progress indicator of the EBRD. Um, uh, and first of all, we're going to make that one adjustment that the years, uh, the number of years of reform, and we're going to make zero the year before the Big Bang, so zero... Uh, is 1989 in Poland and 1991 in Russia, for example. And we're going to look at reform, which means the change in that indicator from year zero. Now, one of these countries, Ole wants to, to call a non-shock therapy Big Bang country, and the other he wants to call a Big Bang country, uh, unfortunately, what our graph says that um, Russia looks like the country that most adopted radical reforms, and Poland sort of looks a little bit different. And if you cut it off here after six years of reform, that message is made very strong indeed. And where does that message come from? Well, that message partially comes from the fact that Poland had a whole series of reforms. 
Under the communists, there was really quite extensive reforms going on in the late 1980s. And then when solidarity took power before the Big Bang in the last uh, quarter, especially of 1989, uh, there was intensification. Then there was the Big Bang in early 1990. Then the Big Bang faced a lot of criticism. And what happened was that by the time we get to late 1990, there was a drawing back from the Big Bang. Uh, credit was eased. It was moved to specific state enterprises and so on. In 1991, there were further readjustments. The tariffs, which had been made with some of the lowest in the world in early 1990, were raised uh, by 300% on average. And so... How did the radical reformers, those in the IMF in particular, react to this? They suspended the endorsement of policy. So if there is a country that had an aborted Big Bang, it was Poland. And notice that there were institutions already in Polish society, civil institutions, solidarity in the Catholic Church, that were immensely important in shoring up the... Polish society at that point. You had Catholic priests going into state enterprises and um, uh, trying to calm the workers. Solidarity, of course, was very important and so on. And my point here is not that that was bad or anything like that. Poland was probably very fortunate in that sense. But rather that here we have is a big bang that's being supported by existing elements in society that had been developed a long time ago with the Catholic Church for centuries, solidarity for about 20 years. And so here's a, here's a point that Ola makes that I, that, that I very strongly disagree with. A special case that has caused a lot of understanding is Russia. Its huge leap forward was eventually reversed. And for that reason, Russia is cat categorized as an aborted, Bing Bang, an aborted Big Bang country. Well, if we use the gradual versus rapid dichotomy and accept the way I've presented the transition progress indicator, then Russia looks rapid, Poland looks gradual. The second thing I think is a sort of deeper econometric statistical issue that the aborted Big Bang was probably endogenous. It was probably a function of previous reforms. And I'm not saying bad or good here at all, but rather I'm saying that we can't look at that aborted Big Bang as an exogenous event in our statistical studies, but rather have to think about that aborted Big Bang as something that was produced by the previous five or six years of reform. And that point takes me to the last uh, admonition in all his paper, which is inertia in the study of transition. Uh, there's a vast amount of research in there, uh, out there. Uh, in particular, there are two very useful meta-analyses, which means that um, uh, people basically read everything they could on things and cohered all the studies into one uh, coherent framework, just like is done uh, in, for instance, drug studies and so on. I wrote one of these papers. This was on privatization. Um, 
you know, there's a hundred plus papers that we looked at and cohered. Um, and there's recently been this paper by Besky and, and Campos on policy reform, which is much more relevant to what we're talking about today. And so I'm going to talk about that paper. But realize it summarizes 46 different papers in a very detailed way there were, where there's over 500 statistical analyses in all. What that paper does is look at the effect of reform on GDP growth. It looks at all the different papers. Uh, it looks at heterogeneous methods, uh, handling problems in the right way and the wrong way, and adjust for that, and so on. And simple correlations are resoundingly positive. Um, uh, and so that's the analysis that comes from that comes in Ole's paper. He talks about the similarity between figure two, which traces market liberalization, which is in the bottom right-hand corner, and figure eight, which traces income, uh, which is in the top left-hand corner. I will mention, by the way, that there's a difference between the paper, the, the figure that appears in the top left-hand corner and the one that uh, appeared uh, on the slides that were presented in Ole's talk, which was that the, the, the figure from the paper in the top left-hand corner is constant dollars. The figure on the slides that you saw 20 minutes ago or so was current dollars, and that makes the recession looks a lot less than you will see on the slides at the moment. So the causal analysis in the paper is gradual or rapid reforms. Uh, uh, if economic performance is the main measure of success, the data speaks loudly. And the analysis is from uh, these two figures, essentially. But as I said, this Babetsky-Campos paper has uh, uh, done a meta-analysis. And what I will do is very quickly summarize the uh, empirical methods, the, the, the results of that paper. Uh, uh, I'm going to use papers that apply up-to-date empirical methods. And the conclusion one comes to there is that the typical paper appearing in an academic journal and using modern empirical methods, the long-run effect of policy change on growth is negative in that meta-analysis. And not only that, but if one looks at the speed of reforms instead of just the reforms themselves, uh, the typical paper appearing in an academic journal and using modern empirical methods, the effect of speed of policy change on growth is negative in that paper. And the effect of speed of policy change on growth is less than the effect of policy change. And that second bullet essentially sort of speaks to the issue of gradual uh, or rapid reforms. What does all of this say? Well, one thing you have to note is that the, 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 the papers studied by uh, Babetsky and Campos, the types of policy reforms they look at are not controversial. Uh, these are policy reforms implemented decades, centuries ago in developed countries. But their effect is negative on balance, especially when they're introduced very quickly. 
My interpretation there from these results is that the manner of implementation and the setting of implementation matter, and that speaks to the issue of radical versus evolutionary institutional reforms. And since I got the one-minute note uh, 55 seconds ago, I think I'll stop right at this point. Thank you, Peter. I don't think that's the last you've heard of Russia um, today um, in your presentation. Um, but our next speaker comes from Bulgaria. Uh, Krasin Stanchev, Dr. Krasin Stanchev is an associate professor at uh, Sofia uh, University. He's also the CEO of KC2 and board chairman and founder and former uh, executive director of IME, which is Bulgaria's first independent and free market think tank and he's a former member and committee chairman of the Constitutional Assembly. He is one of the most quoted uh, Bulgarian observers and received the Best Country Analyst Award in 1996 by Euromoney, as well as he is the laureate of, Bulgaria, of Bulgarian Government Prize and the Templeton Prize. He was a principal drafter of a number of reforms that took uh, place in Bulgaria and that took Bulgaria from central planning to market economy and is one of the leaders on those reforms. His expertise is in economic and regulatory policies conducive to private sector growth in new EU states and former Soviet Union. Since 1990s, he's worked in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, in Montenegro, Central Asia, Caucasus, and Russia, um, leading teams of private and public international organizations. Please help me welcome Krasin Stanchev. Thank you for inviting me. Um, actually, my first public talk was at Cato uh, back in 92, I think. And I was talking about uh, restitution. Uh, and I will go to restitution uh, of uh, formerly confiscated properties uh, in just a bit. But I would like to start with uh, some sort of a philosophical statement. Uh, when we think of... Uh, the dichotomy of gradualism versus Big Bang, uh, the, the gradualism uh, comes from, uh, I'll say, a German-style uh, planning. You know, so you have the government. The government you know, is voted into power. Uh, they have executive and other functions, so they should know what they do. So in reality, I mean, the, the, the Big Bang, uh, was more of a public choice uh, situation. Uh, if we go back to, uh, say, first years, be this Poland, Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, or Bulgaria. I mean, thank you, Peter, for bringing in Poland, actually, because Bulgaria and Poland, they're very similar in one very important respect. These are the countries which backed off in the mid-'90s from the big bank of fast shock therapy into some sort of gradualism. So, and there are lots of commonalities in there. And the other common thing between Bulgaria and Poland is that uh, uh, Bulgaria and Poland were the only country, countries of the former communist camp or Warsaw Pact, uh, which basically defaulted on this foreign debt. So the, the, the story of both defaults is very similar to Greece, by the way. So the difference is that our countries defaulted normally. There was an underwriter between 
of the, of the agreement between the debtors and the creditors. So the underwriter basically uh, took the responsibility of uh, pushing for uh, some reforms. So, but the Greece situation was very much different. Otherwise, the sizes and the, the reasons for the indebtedness, you know, they were very similar in all these three countries. So, but back to uh, back to 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 this whatever dichotomy. So, if we go back to the first years. I remember Václav Havel, as it was today, uh, he said, we don't want anything special. We want Czechoslovakia to be a normal country. The, the revolutions of 89, they were not about blueprints. They were about something going back to normality. Normality was a very important word. So, if you look at uh, normal versus abnormal uh, economies, so in abnormal economies, you don't have proper money. Like Marian said at the beginning, you know, there were shortages. The money was uh, similar to lottery tickets. You know, you go with your whatever, uh, kronas or whatever, forints, you know, you go to a shop and there is nothing over there. If you are lucky, you will get a toilet paper. If you are not lucky, you know, your lottery ticket doesn't work, you know, so. So the money was not there. Uh, the, 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 the central planning was not working because there were no plans, actually, because, and there were no plans because there were no prices. So there were three instances. In, first was uh, back in, on the fourth year of establishment of the Comic-Con. In '59, they came up with the idea of using London's uh, commodity exchange prices you know, for central planning. So then in '69, after the Czechoslovak invasion, you know, there was an next move, you know, to use uh, to use dollar as a as an accounting unit, you know, for the Comic Con countries. So, of course, you know, some of the countries, you know, Bulgaria was voting first, you know, because of uh, of, of the alphabetic order, and so Bulgaria voted, you know, that proposal, you know, uh, 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 down. But then in the 70s, you know, in the 76, actually, after Helsinki. Uh, process. If you remember, you know some of uh, uh, some of you are my age. So the Helsinki process was very important, and after the Helsinki process, was this uh, was uh, there was already a political necessity of introducing some sort of a common currency unit, and it was the convertible rubble. So, but even with the convertible rubble, after 77, 78, you know, we did not enjoy normal currencies. So, so what was then? The transition about. So the transition was about normality. And what was normality? The normality was a country which functions, or economy which functions. Going back to Kornai, he had about seven, eight uh, typical, whatever, descriptions of normality, which he named uh, capitalism. So power friendly to market economy. So it happened almost immediately after the first elections. Although some countries, had their ideas about market reforms even under the communist rule. So uh, Victor Sebastian he, uh, published a book like 10 years ago, on the, oh, no, five years ago on the 20th anniversary. He basically shows day by day how in 89, you know, the reformers or the ex-communist reformers were thinking of reintroducing market economy. They were in favor of normality themselves. So after the first elections, it was relatively easy. Our communists or our ex-communists, 
you know, are much more to the right or much more pro-capitalist than, you know, most rightist parties, for example, in Austria. So when you talk to, 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 to chambers of commerce or business associations in, in Austria, they're very similar to our ex-communists, you know. So they, they have much, for much more for intervention, much more for central planning than our, whatever, cares of the ex-communist uh, parties, you know, the socialists. So dominant private property. Dominant private property took in different countries uh, 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 longer periods. So uh, uh, next feature is prevailing market coordination. Prevailing market coordination was imposed on these countries. It was not a free choice. It was imposed because economies were not functioning, because there was no money. In fact, the prevailing market coordination appeared in all these countries at a very early stage of reforms when uh, uh, then reformist government Governments introduced uh, 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 attempts to, 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 to make normal convertible currencies. They liberalized prices, and it happened on the first day, actually, of reforms. So in different countries, it's possible to trace by the very date when it happened. So, and after it happened, it was not possible to, uh, to, 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 to bring the genie back into the bottle and have a central planning. So there were attempts, and I will go to them you know, and, and explain. Hard budget constraints. Hard budget constraints, Mart Lahr explained it very well. Uh, so hard budget constraints were sort of a uh, policy, but not exactly a policy. If you run a country which is just after uh, uh, independence from the former Soviet Union, and you don't have a penny in the treasury, what you would do? You would do nothing. So you will not go for bailing out banks. You will not go for fancy schemes to support subsidized enterprises. You will not go for industrial policies or whatever. So you would do what you can do. And the only thing which was possible in Estonia and most of the Baltics was to fix the currencies at the very beginning to, uh, to, to, to provide equal playing ground you know, for all investment, domestic and foreign. And of course, uh, to uh, uh, try, you know, to keep uh, some sort of order in the house in order to get taxes coming to the treasury. But none of the, these Baltic countries had a penny in the treasury, so they couldn't opt for anything else but this. So the countries which were richer and that sort of stuff, you know, so they they had longer whatever. Uh, uh, history of uh, independent economic policy taxation making, you know, they had, you know, this temptation, you know, to go back, you know, to uh, bits and pieces, not entirely central planning uh, policy making. I will go further. Uh, the buyer's market was uh, eventually there. Uh, shortages, they disappeared basically on the second month. So Bulgaria and Poland, they, they started uh, relatively uh, uh, together. So Bulgaria, because it's smaller, you know, we were uh, done with the shortages on, 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 on the fourth week. So there was no shortage on the fourth week of anything. So Poland, which, which was, it was much more uh, difficult because they had shortages for 10 years. So they were presumed to default in 81. So Bulgaria was uh, defaulted just in... Uh, uh, 1990. So unemployment 
become visible on the first year, so which is some sort of a, a normality as well. Uh, typical business cases, uh, business cycles came into uh, into play relatively late. They they came into play when 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 the entire economic structure was somehow adjusted to reality, and reality here was. Uh, uh, the, the, the international market, uh, uh, reorientation of trade flows from east to west. What is different in, uh, in Slovenia, for example, is not that they were sort of gradualists, although I know Joseph Menzinger, who was the guy you know, who kicked out uh, IMF when they came to their country. Uh, they were gradualists as, as a philosophic uh, 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 attitude. But they were gradually because on the first day of independence, they were trading 65% with the European economic community, which was not the case with Poland, Czechoslovakia, or Bulgaria. Czechoslovakia was tra trading with the former Soviet Union like 56% of its international volumes. So Bulgaria was even worse. So Bulgaria was trading 80% of its trade you know, with the former Soviet Union. So the normality in our country came you know, with a, at, at, at a higher cost than for example for Slovenia, because they did not have an adjustment to market conjecture. So you may ski along skis, you know, from, uh, I mean, from, from, from the mid-80s. So the same is uh, the, 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 the pharmaceuticals and that sort of stuff. So uh, I think Andre remembers, you know, we, uh, we were uh, in, uh, in, in Slovenia a couple of years ago, and all these stories, you know, were basically visible. You see an economy which did not have a profound structural change. So, uh, so we'll go back, skip several slides. Uh, so the, 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 the features of the common denominator for the countries which made difference uh, after, after transition. By the way, what I would like to underline the transition was an instantaneous process. It was not a long-term process. In some cases, or in some institutional reforms, it took longer. But in terms of economic adjustment, it was instantaneous, almost instantaneous. Of course, you need some sort of a legal process you know, to privatize. You need some sort of a legal process to restitute. So the restitution typically took you know, like six, six to seven years. So restitution was basically in place everywhere. Uh, restitution meaning restoring private property uh, rights, uh, especially of land, forest, uh, and everything else, including assets. You know, but it took, it took some time. Uh, but in 98, it was over. So what happened in 98, you know, also was very interesting. So in 98, all these countries, or the new Europe countries, they started negotiating a formal, how, how I'm doing with the time? Uh, okay. Uh, uh, in, in 98, all of them uh, started negotiations to, 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 to become members of the European Union, which was very different from the beginning of the reforms. Actually, some of the slowdown came in 97, 98. Some of the countries, especially the Baltics and especially Estonia, they had to back off you know, from some of the liberalization they had in place. For example, Estonia used to maintain you know, zero tariff policy with, uh, uh, with almost entire 
world. So when they decided to go back to, uh, to, 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 to the European Union agenda, they had to surrender those, uh, uh, those things, and it immediately affected the, the, the growth rate in, in, in 99 and, and 2000. Of course, then they, then they catched up because they reduced uh, taxes and that sort of stuff. Another common feature was uh, that there were no resources to conduct industrial policy or housing for poor policies uh, or export promotion. Jan Vinetsky has a very good book uh, comparing, and it's similar, by the way, to one of the books uh, by, by Anders Asland, uh, comparing, uh, uh, comparing uh, 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 Poland, Central European countries uh, with the former Soviet Union. One of the differences, uh, one of the peculiarities of uh, Central European countries was that none of them ever embarked on some sort of a industrial policy, export promotion, okay, uh, or housing for poor. Or if there were cases, you know, it was for, for, for segments of society, for special groups, so which basically led to a much faster uh, integration of the economic structures of those countries, not only with the European Union, with, with, but in the global market. They, uh, Central European global market shares increased between 91 and 98 six times. So, which is sort of an evidence, you know, for something. Uh, the only way to go forward, and that's the next common feature, was to uh, either restore or to adhere to, uh, to, to, to sound fiscal and south central banking policies. So this explains why in many of the countries we are talking about, we, had, we, we have a, a, a quasi-currency uh, board arrangements. Most of, the, uh, uh, most of the exchange rates were uh, fixed at a relatively early points. Some of the countries opted you know, for a currency board arrangement. Some of the countries opted for currency board arrangement after uh, an attempt to reintroduce central planning. And here I go to... Uh, my beloved Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria is a very interesting country because, uh, because of several things. This is the country, this is the European country which defaulted uh, more than any other country in the 20th century. It defaulted uh, uh, in 1915, in 1932, under communism for the first time in 1960, uh, in 1976, for second time under communism, and as a result of the communist uh, economic policies, it defaulted once again on its foreign debt. All these are foreign debt defaults uh, in 1990. And then, you know, for next time, I see Warren Coates here, uh, it defaulted on its domestic debt in 97, which explains, you know, why Bulgaria is so poor, of course. So, uh, because, you know, it, it, it was always, you know, dealing, you know, with some sort of a uh, Greek type, you know, uh, problem of uh, adjustment and recovery. Uh, so, the history of these defaults, especially on the communism, is also very important, but I don't have the time to go into details. What these defaults of Bulgaria prove is that under communism, the central planning was not working. So, there was no single five-year plan in Bulgaria ever to be fulfilled. So, Grzegorz Kolotko, the uh, ex-finance minister of, uh, of, of Poland, 
uh, he made uh, uh, he made his second second doctoral thesis, I think, in 2001 and 2002. I think here in Georgetown, uh, comparing uh, the, the the normal uh, macroeconomic uh, 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 history or written history of the communist countries with uh, with uh, what they had in place with, uh, with these material indicators and that sort of stuff. So, and the normal reading of those histories basically shows that. Uh, central planning or five-year plans were exceptions. Very rarely you have a conventional uh, criteria for economic or sustained economic growth fulfilled. The conventional criteria will be like three years in row of economic growth. Very rarely, you know, those countries had these three years of economic growth. Bulgaria is a good case because it never had three years of economic growth. Uh, in 1996, I'm finishing, yes. In 1995, 1996, um, the, 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 the Bulgarian socialists, ex-communists, they decided to, uh, to, to go into some sort of a second edition of central planning. What was the result? The result was that uh, the industry declined, uh, 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 I mean, industry, real wages in the industry uh, declined, you know, by 19% a month in '96. The inflation by the end of the year was like 500%, and in '97 January the inflation was 1,500%. So this is just because of the attempt, you know, to reintroduce central planning. I can explain the public choice whatever situation, but that's not so important. So what uh, happened actually is that after the initial recession, which was assessed commonly, you know, for all our countries at the level of 20 to 25%. So after the initial recession, Bulgaria, you know, uh, jumped deeply, you know, to, into, into a second recession. But what happened after, uh, one of the results was, you know, that the poverty level measured by the World Bank uh, uh, standard methodology, the poverty level between 95 and 97 jumped four times. So what happened after the, I mean, the, this was a second big bank reform in Bulgaria. So what happened after was we fixed the exchange rate, we reduced the government uh, expenditures as, 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 as a share of GDP, we reduced the taxes, we introduced flat taxes eventually at 10%. I can explain why 10%, so, but it was, uh, it was a plan. Yes, I'm finishing. So, and what we have after this second big bank, uh, is very visible from the statistics. So in the last 10 years, irrespectively of the economic crisis, the GDP went up by 65%. So, and the real income of the households in the last 10 years, so since 2003, uh, went up you know, by 58%. Thank you. Thank you very much. We will now open to Q&A. We'll break up at uh, quarter two, uh, at which point there will be a short 15 minute break for coffee. And then the second panel will commence at uh, um, 11 o'clock. Um, but we have about 20 minutes of, uh, of uh, time for Q&A. So please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone so everybody in the room can hear what you have to say. Um, or rather what you have to ask, because please form your questions in the form of a question. And if you put, please uh, would tell us your name and your affiliation. So with that, are there any questions?
Uh, right here in front. First, thank you. Very enlightening. Um, my question uh, is focused more on the first two speakers. Uh, gentlemen, um, reminds me of the term lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, I would love it. I, I tend to think that, um, well, I would love it to hear if you stripped out oil revenues from Russia, their economy, what the GDP and whatever other indicators you're using would show about economic progress. Because the latest information I saw out of a Russian economic institution was that Aside from oil and gas, there's been basically no growth in the last 20 years. And would you please Wants to handle think that. about that, comment on it? Um, I, I, you want me to answer that? Yep. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you. First of all, uh, I was going to say re make reference to uh, Mark Twain as well, uh, but uh, thank you for doing so. Uh, the uh, Russia and oil business, uh, I think it's a little bit exaggerated to say that there's nothing there except oil. Uh, uh, there has been an improvement from 25 years ago, but the oil does dominate and give a bit of a biased picture. On the other hand, the positive side of the oil is that it is the oil that has allowed Russia to maintain a very solid budgetary position, which includes a lot of the expenditures for social programs. Uh, as a Ukrainian, uh, you know what I would say about the, what the oil helped do, and it would not be very positive. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll just make a quick comment. Um, uh, there's a whole profession of statisticians, and I'm sure most of them are trying to produce good evidence. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't have anything to say about that quote at all. I do have a little bit to say on Russia, which is that one thing we know is that oil, huge oil resources change the whole nature of a political and economic and social system. Uh, in ways that if a country is not developed before it gets the oil, are very detrimental to the country, actually. And so that takes us to the statistical line that in order to understand Russia, you have to control for the fact that it has lots of oil. and that's So in order to understand how policy has affected Russia, you have to, un you have to understand how oil has affected Russia the, the uh, performance of the country. And the statistical studies I cited are just ones that basically do that. Look at these other types of factors that are going to have a huge influence. Right in front. Yes, I'm Sam Wright, retired Navy. Um, let's posit the possibility of the North Korean regime implodes and we have to apply this to reunification of the Korean Peninsula what what would you predict and is it true that the differences between North Korea and South Korea would dwarf the differences between East Germany and West Germany circa 1989 who wants to take that go ahead so I'm not an expert on on, on North Korea 
but a couple of uh, German political foundations, especially uh, Friedrich Naumann Stiftung, are trying, you know, to educate on privatization the North Korean Communist government. So I think, you know, the story in North Korea will be very similar to to uh, East versus West Germany. I'm not sure how in detail it will be common, because uh, because. West Germany was paying Soviet Union, then Gorbachev, you know, for the unification. And it was, uh, it, there was a, there was a huge uh, uh, bill about this, you know, I, as far as I remember, about 65 billion D-marks. Uh, so I believe, however, that, you know, this will be probably the cost of South Koreans, you know, uh, reestablishing some sort of a rule of law and normality in North Korea, about of the same size. So like 50 to, to 60 billion dollars or something of the sort. Because the country is really devastated. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I would uh, uh, only add one quick comment. Uh, I think that uh, in relative comparisons, the size of East Germany vis-a-vis -vis West Germany was much bigger than the size of North Korea to uh, South Korea. So they could make all the same mistakes that West Germany did, uh, but absorb it much more easily. I don't think it would be very difficult uh, to, uh, to make the transition and uh, have it paid for out of Seoul. When you say mistakes of West Germany toward East Germany, uh, would you like to elaborate on that? Uh, yes. I, 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 I have my views. I just want to wonder if yes, you... Yes, yeah. Uh, I think the main mistake made was... Uh, uh, economic mistake. Well, let me, let me, uh, it, you forced me to take more time than I want to take from the audience. But, uh, the main uh, problem or mistake made in, the, in that process in absorbing East Germany is to give an immediate exchange rate, uh, a, a formal one in which of equality, which provided a huge rise and boost in the per capita income of a region whose productivity was far, far below the rest of West Germany. And this, of course, contributed to the much longer period of unemployment in East Germany than could have been done with a somewhat harsher. Uh, West Germany thought it was uh, politicians, thought it was uh, uh, rich enough to be able to absorb this. I don't think they misunderstood the economics of it. Uh, but it did, it did cause some problems and certainly had a reflection later the populace wasn't, of West Germany was not exactly, uh, you know, happy with uh, with this, and it had consequences politically of, of all sorts. To the present day, there is a in West Germany a term, "Ossi," uh, that is not exactly a uh, shall we say a complimentary word. Question in front. I just have a quick comment uh, on the North Korea thing. Uh, one. Uh, there are, there are two basic results or facts from transition correlations that seem to be the case. One is that the better run were the countries before the transition, the better the transition process uh, played out. Secondly, countries... Um, came to look much, much more like their neighbors, non-ex-socialist countries, than anybody would have ever predicted at the start of transition. And so from the point of view of North Korea, the first thing tells you 
it's going to be an absolute disaster. Um, the second thing is somewhat more hopeful that maybe the recovery of the old culture and so on will not be as hard as uh, we may first think. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz. I'm retired. And free enterprise is dependent on entrepreneurs, namely people, especially small entrepreneurs. Russia was a feudal country for centuries, uh, and the culture was well-established. Uh, Lenin, and especially Stalin, reinstalled feudalism with the communes replacing the estates and the commissars and the managers replacing the landowners. And basically, the feudal culture has continued in Russia. Uh, it's been only about one generation since 1991, so Russia is still basically a feudal country. Uh, and uh, I, don't, I have a feeling that the main difference between Russia and Central Europe and the Baltics is this difference in culture. Central Europe and the Baltics were not uh, feudal countries. Ukraine basically was. And I think it's the actions of the uh, public, the people, rather than the actions of the government that made the difference. I wonder if you could react to that. I don't think Russia TV is going to show this question, but um, <laughs> who, who wants to take it? Uh, I, uh, let, let, me, let me take it and roll it into some of the differences uh, that, uh, between myself and Peter that uh, Peter uh, mentioned uh, on the issue of what is it that determines uh, economic performance of a country. I have absolutely no problem with uh, the view that it's more than just simply how much you invest in do you, uh, do you liberalize prices or other uh, reforms? Do you privatize? It is more complicated. Uh, at the same time, I think that the evidence of 25 years of transformation, when looked at across other countries, showed that historical inertia, which is a very important phenomenon, can be occasionally broken, especially at critical moments. And this is what the Balsarovich philosophy was all about. It's a critical moment. This is the time to bang, to move with a bang. Uh, Igor Gaidar uh, professed the same philosophy. Uh, and uh, I will, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to prophesy, but uh, we, we cannot know that things would have been the same if Gaidar continued in government and continued to undertake his reforms. There was a readiness in the society to break with the past in all of these societies. Some seized the moment, some did not. Uh, actually, I don't like to use that phrase uh, because it's not, uh, and I may disagree with what you're saying, it's not the people, but it is the ruling classes, ruling elites or whoever you want to call them and how they function and what decisions they make and there's a big difference between the committed ruling elites in Central Europe and the Baltics and the uncommitted ruling elites in uh, Ukraine and Russia. I tell the Ukrainian story uh, as follows at the beginning. Uh, there was no change in the majority of the people who ruled the country between 91 and 92. Uh, what did they want? They wanted to transform uh, into uh, uh, it transformed the society into capitalism where they would lose their uh, position of power? Of course not. They wanted to do everything possible to remain in power. They didn't want to remain communists. They were perfectly happy to become the new capitalists, but they needed time to become new capitalists. 
And that's what explains the changes in, uh, in economic reform, which I think do matter in the end. And I may get back to some of the comparisons of uh, uh, performance that, uh, that Peter uh, doubted statistically, but I don't want to take that time now. And if you're interested in the question of historical inertia, uh, President Saakashvili in the second panel will, of course, be making the case, I assume, that it is possible to take a country with very strong historical inertia and then transform some of its most important institutions. But uh, let him speak on that. Krasen? Uh, I would not go into history and culture, although you know, there are obvious similarities between Putin policies and Ivan Kalita's policies of early 15th century. I think, uh, I think what, uh, what matters more Understanding, you know, our countries and the former Soviet Union is understanding the, the recent backgrounds. So we were able in 89, I mean, you've mentioned the pluralism and uh, democratic whatever developments. We were able in 89 go door to door and ask ex-members of parliament to restore their parties of before 44. And it was possible. Then there was a memory of, of property rights. So everybody used to have a title. So everyone. So it was easy. So in Russia, it was impossible because of simple fact of 70 years of something, which is called communism. But I'm not sure whether it was communism. So the recent backgrounds were very important, including the arbitrage between the countries or the internal division of labor, so to say, in the Comecon. So Bulgaria was, uh, was uh, that bad, you know, with, uh, with Comecon because it was enjoying different privileges, you know, in Comecon. So enjoying different privileges for Bulgaria meant that Bulgaria government created more mafiosi-like companies and entrepreneurs, yes, around the globe than, than any other communist country. So Bulgaria used to have, at the day of first democracy elections, used to have 410 companies which were smuggling arms and, and drugs around the globe. So Czechoslovakia used to have 40. Soviet Union used to have 36 of those. So Bulgaria had 10 times more such companies than, 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 than Czechoslovakia. And these people did not disappear. If you have 400 companies, this basically means 200 individuals who work you know, for them. So, and they're the first you know, with some cash you know, and to come and... Uh, uh, finance uh, political parties, establish political parties, or try to make a fortune, you know, in the new environment. Peter? Um, the, sort of two comments. I mentioned that the countries look more like the, their neighbours um, after 25 years of transition than we would have predicted, and there's obviously got to be some cultural factors there. But on the other hand, it's very hard to predict what is the culture of a country. I had the very fortunate experience of, of seeing Mongolia at the worst time of its transition. And there, what happened is that after it had been a colony of the Soviet Union for 70 years and a part of China for I don't, before that for I don't know how long, the Russians just yeah. left. And sort of everybody said, let's be a democracy. Mm. That's what they said. You know, they, had, they didn't even know what it was, probably. And they've been a fantastic democratic country for 25 years. So yeah. these things are very, very unpredictable. 
Uh, let's go to that side. We probably have question, uh, time for two more questions. So, gentleman over there. Yeah. Yes. I'm Terrence Byrne. I'm ex State Department. Can you? I have a question for all three of you. If you were to grade the former communist countries of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union on their performance since the fall of communism, their economic performance, who would get the highest grades and who the lowest? Okay, so let's make this let's make this quick. The best one country, the best, and one country, one the country worst. The best, yeah. Uh, best and the worst. Yeah, I mean, if you if you make me uh, choose within a second, Estonia. And the worst. The worst. Uh, Turkmenistan with Ukraine a close runner-up. <laughs> Peter. And I, I feel patriotic saying that. Uh, Poland on economic performance, uh, for sure. Um, pick any number of countries uh, for the worst performers. Uh, Turkmenistan is fine. <laughs> oh, picture is very different. Hungary was the first until 2003, and now it's one of the worst. Uh, so... Bulgaria was the worst until 1998, uh, and then it's one of the best. Uh, I mean, it's very different. So if you look at different time periods, you know, the countries perform differently. So there is no linear history of, uh, of, of these 20 years or 25 years. There is no linear history. It's very important. And Peter disagrees. No, I, I actually wanted to re rephrase my answer, <coughs> uh, change my answer after thinking about it. Russia. Russia is the worst performer oh, on the economic on economic policy. Yes, because they had so many possible advantages and they have messed it up so much. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Mm -hmm. Right. One last question. Um, yes, sir, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Peter Shetley, retired State Department. Hordes of Western consultants descended on these countries uh, after the early revolutions, giving all kinds of advice. And my question to you is, were there any of the economic reforms that were homegrown? Which Western, I mean, you don't have to give names, but did Western consultants, advisors give good advice or terrible advice? How did that work out? Uh, okay. So there is a common... Uh, there is a common behavior. When you send advisors to another country, you typically send people who does not make any difference in your home country, so you get basically rid of them. <laughs> so, uh, but it was not always the case. So uh, I, I remember when I was a chairman of a uh, committee of the Constitutional Assembly, I received the first USAID support for the country and I needed an advice on concession regulations, you know, the mineral rights. When I saw Texaco draft contract, it was 890 pages in English, but I had the opinion, you know, I had the feeling, you know, it was Chinese. So I couldn't understand the thing. So I simply called the ambassador and said, listen, I have a problem. I have advisors, I have friends in Washington, free market environmental think tanks, so I would like to invite some of them, you know, for two weeks just to explain what is written in this contract. So Warren Coates is here. Warren, 
on behalf of IMF, but not only, uh, helped uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. His book, One Currency for All, is just amazing on how you build an institution from scratch in a uh, sort of post-war environment. Everybody has a gun and everybody has, hates everyone. So it's an amazing book. Uh, but he also helped Bulgaria. He fixed Afghanistan, the central bank, and he helped inflation targeting in many countries, different, different post-Soviet countries. Uh, but the great success, you know, he accomplished was, uh, uh, was Kazakhstan. I was working then, you know, for an American company in Kazakhstan, and I knew the country from inside. And I know what was the situation with the central bank. So, I mean, there, there are different cases. But the common thing, especially with the European Union, is that people send folks, experts, who make no difference in their own countries. And then there is a difference. So my last sentence. Peter? If you have European Union sending experts, you have reforms delayed. If you have uh, World Bank, IMF, and, to some and sometimes uh, experts sent on the USA ticket, you may, may have you know, the reforms some sort of uh, uh, boosted. I watched IMF officials teach Mongolians about how to construct price indexes, and I was incredibly impressed with the quality of tuition and so on and how quickly they did their jobs. So uh, my impression was that when people focused on, when, when they were technical experts in technical fields, they did fantastic jobs. And one unheralded unheralded success, I think, is just how much central banks changed over time because of IMF advice. If you look at the history of that, that is just unbelievable how professional these central banks came became in a really quite short time. Olaf, you get the last word? Yes. Um, I uh, feel uh, blessed by the fact that I, I've seen this thing from uh, three sides as an academic advisor as a uh, government official in Ukraine, and as an IMF official telling the uh, Russians or Ukrainians what to do. I think the answer to your question uh, is a good advice, best or worst, both. There was a lot of very good advice, and the more technical, the, uh, the, the truer the case, as Peter noted. And there was some very bad advice, and it could come from lots of different places. Uh, the IMF, let me give you an example beyond the narrow technical, where the IMF did something fantastic and where it did something horrible. The horrible was that in the first a few years, the first uh, sorry, year, year and a half of independence of countries from the Soviet Union, Ukraine and all the others, uh, they were trying to convince uh, the uh, uh, everybody around to stick with the ruble. That was a disaster. I won't go into why. That was a bad piece of advice. And they fairly quickly recognized it and, uh, and actually changed their uh, position. Uh, the very best piece of advice at the broader level uh, was get your financial house in order. Get the budget, get the uh, central bank money creation things under control. Uh, that may not have uh, impacted immediately on all countries as quickly as possible. That may not have been needed in some countries. Uh, uh, Poland and Estonia didn't want the IMF programs because they were, they were pushing them uh, into, into going too slowly. 
They, they wanted to go faster than the IMF did at the beginning. But overall, the rapidity with which these hyperinflationary, high inflation situations were solved in 25 odd countries is really historically uh, quite impressive. And I think the IMF has to be given a lot of credit for that. Well, that's uh, ending on a note of optimism. Uh, thank you to the panel. Thanks to all of you. And we'll see you in uh, 15 minutes or so. Thank you. Thank you.